Welcome back to Aligning America. I'm your host, Vincent Miller, and let's get right into things. First off, we've got uh, an update on a news story that we actually covered maybe a week or two ago um, about uh, Mr. Snowden. Trump is actually in talks to pardon him, which is an incredible shock. It's it's quite the turnaround from what we actually had believed was going to happen. What I personally, I'm going to be the first one to admit, I was wrong. I was staunch in my belief that he would not pardon him due to his numerous ties to people who have been in government for a long time who would be harmed by his pardoning. Largely, of course, you recall what happened with Snowden, his exile to Russia and what had happened with him and the Obama era, quote unquote, deep state, those appointed state officials in the judiciary and legislature of that era of politics. You look at those and you say, you know, he's got I mean, he made off with some million dollars, billion dollars of of invaluable information, uh, as well as exposing Mr. James Clapper, who had actually committed perjury in front of the courts defending the Patriot Act and its overstepping boundaries of private investigations. These calls for his pardoning have been numerous since the beginning, but of course, it's always been the vocal minority. There are, however, growing sentiments of forgiveness, quite honestly, because we've got people like Rand Paul, who, of course, he styles himself as a libertarian. It would make sense that he would want someone to call out the big government getting too large. Uh, That's understandable. Of course, we'd have AOC and Bernie have at least mentioned it in passing. I believe Bernie Sanders had, had committed if he was going to be president to pardoning Snowden. I'm not sure that's the case, so don't hold me to it, but I believe that's exactly uh, what he felt. AOC, of course, parroting many of Bernie's talking points would align with the same, at least the same sentiment. And you've seen the far left have that sentiment for both Assange and Snowden. Um, Edward Snowden, of course, still being in Russia after all these years. uh, There have been at least accusations of him working with the Russians, but I don't believe that's the case because he has come out on multiple occasions claiming that he himself is in danger in Russia and would like nothing more than to come back home. So you never know. But with this growing support with Trump, even, you know, this bipartisan support, Tulsi Gabbard being a very famous, famous for being bipartisan, quite honestly, something of a radical centrist. She has been vocal about pardoning both of these men. And now that Trump may seriously consider it, this is a change of fortune for not only him, but it sets a really good precedent for whistleblowers. Because we talk all the time about how a whistleblower is someone who has called out the government on something that no one would have ever known otherwise. And it was on their moral conscience that they decided to come forward with information that they thought the public should know, or at least the administration should know if it's going under, you know, above the head of the administration itself. These whistleblowers need protection. And then subsequently charging them in, quite honestly, what was an unfair court case. Uh, immediately sentencing him, that sets a horrible precedent. And it's one of the things that we should hold Obama to the standard of being very much an abuse of power. With that said, retroactively changing this precedent would be wonderful because it would set a better precedent for those who are going to call out the government on on either its misinformed actions, information, regardless of what it happens to be. Those things, those instances of being called out must be protected Otherwise, they won't happen. Otherwise, you won't. You know, no one wants to jump at the chance to get exiled to Russia. Okay, that much is obvious. This sets a good precedent. It's a good change of pace, especially for the Trump presidency. You could you could argue that this is just another one of the ways that he plans on spiting the entire world as he leaves. Uh, you could look to his promised veto of the military defense spending budget that is incoming. So we don't know, and of course that'll still pass anyways because even though Trump will veto that spending bill. 
there's already an overwhelming majority in both houses. It will pass regardless. So it does seem that he's somewhat throwing a tantrum as he leaves, which is to be expected with a man of his caliber. But this could be a meaningful, and of course, because there's no way to counter his pardon, this could be a meaningful set of precedent that he could change and would be a legacy that he should be proud of. And I'm not sure whether he would comprehend the actual effects of it, but for many people on the far left and many people who honestly should be across the spectrum, this is an, an absolute win. Um, so, of course, getting this lame duck president to do one last ditch effort to kind of put up the middle finger to the general population and especially the established politicians. That's great, in my opinion, as long as it's doing the right thing. I don't care how many, you know, he could bring in a screwdriver or a hammer. He's going to bring in a hammer and that works all the same. You're going to get into the the case with the diamond, and that's on. You know, it, all that matters right now is the end game. Um, the means don't matter much, especially because we're dealing with Trump, and we can't control the means. Uh, nobody can. Some would argue he can't. At least it's a positive ending to a somewhat strange story. And of course, this isn't at all confirmed, but it would make somewhat sense for him being the drain the swamp guy. That would be at least leave a reflective. Uh, I fulfilled my promises doing X, X, and X, that would that would seem to fulfill those boxes as he's on his way out so he can leave what he thinks is a positive legacy, and I, I'd imagine his supporters do as well. Moving on to our next segment, we're going to cover some, honestly, some pretty depressing stuff. Let's just get into it here. We're going to talk about the, the mainstreaming of not the alt-right, because that, that term no longer works, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people are coming to realize that the alt-right, much like the far left, is far too big of a catch-all phrase. It doesn't really, it can't handle the intricacies of what are happening nowadays, and that's depressing in itself, sure, but there needs to be some distinguishing terms here, so uh, from now on, I'm, I'm not going to say the alt-right, I'm going to say either QAnon or the Proud Boys. The distinction there, of course, QAnon is the organization, the social organization that believes that there is a cabal of deep state operatives that eat babies and are pedophiles and run an international ring of pedophilia and control all the governments. Right. That, of course, should already be taken on faith. We, we know that by now. Uh, and if you don't know that, well, now you do. The Proud Boys are the uh, traditional alt-right of racist and bigoted activists who go out and terrorize people in the streets during rallies. We have one of those incidences here uh, looking at the Proud Boys stabbing. So there was a Trump rally. It was called the Million MAGA March. And I don't know if you've heard of it. I believe there was more than one. But this was during this, this last on the 13th of December this year. The Proud Boys showed up to the Million MAGA March and there was a number of stunts they were, quite honestly, just walking around. They were marching, which is fine. They have the right to express their opinions through the First Amendment. But then things got bad as the sun went down. The police, of course, were there to monitor the situation, which was a nice, at least, change of pace. We, we saw the police monitoring the situation. But as the sun went down and the streets got dark, it became increasingly difficult for the police to keep up with the number of proud boys who were out there. They, were, they numbered in the thousands, which is a scary thought for them to conglomerate like that. But they numbered in the thousands. We ended the night, surprisingly, with no fatalities, but at least four stabbings. There were no gunshots fired, at least not in, into anybody. But there were four stab wounds reported by the end of the night, and multiple churches were assaulted. What do I mean by churches were assaulted? Well, 
It's a bit ironic, isn't it? Because if an Antifa operative, arguably they exist, arguably they don't, but if at least not on a large scale, but if an Antifa operatist or an anarchist or a far left Bernie, you know, Bernie Sanders supporter, obviously that's a bit of an oxymoron, but anyone on the far left or associated with the left or even loosely not associated with the right, if they attacked a church of any any creed, any color, it would be an instant wildfire story on the right. It would spread faster than you could blink, and it would be the calling card. It would be the Alamo for the next month during any clash of supporters, during any news interview or article. It, it would be all over the news. But on the 13th, there were multiple churches. One, the Osbury Church there in D.C., the United Methodist Church there in D.C. is a traditionally black church. They have been around since the 1830s, 1840s. I mean, a truly historic church here. They, of course, had a Black Lives Matter sign up. And so as the night went on, Proud Boys supporters decided to jump the fence. They ripped down the sign and they graffitied the church. Uh, they attempted to burn it down, but the police stopped them. It was a mess. It, it was a mess. So you want to talk about double standards? Done. I mean, we've already covered that. You can use your brain to, to fill that out to its logical conclusion. Sure. But it's horrifying to me to see this level of violence normalized. Because again, and I've talked about this before, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit more as we talk about legal precedent going into another story today, the last story that we will cover. It is a bit horrifying to see these things flash up on a news feed and then go away. Because nobody's in an uproar. Nobody cares. They they care, but they can't be bothered to show it because if you if you gave it your all emotionally every single time a story like that showed up, where would you be? You'd be a mess. And so the general desensitization to these, you know, stories that that are big flashy lights, church burned down, church attacked, church graffitied, people stabbed, reporters clashed with QAnon supporters. It doesn't matter anymore to most people, which is a problem because we have this on such a regular occurrence. We're being desensitized and it's a problem. It's going to persist to be a problem going forward. Quite honestly, I'm not sure there's an easy fix here. The hope, of course, is that as soon as Donald Trump leaves the office, Biden takes over, we would see the dissipation of these groups. But my worry is with their leader in exile, quote unquote, and with Trump out of the government, either one of two things. We may see a flock of supporters go to a new politician or a rising star of some sort. I could see it in a Matt Gitz. I could see it in a, I don't know, in Ivanka Trump. Her speculated run for a Florida Senate seat is in 2022 against Marco Rubio. That would be interesting. That would be a strange continuation of a political dynasty. So we'll see where that movement lands. Otherwise, you could have the movement spring into something entirely new. We could see an entirely new wave of politicians. We already saw Marjorie Taylor Greene. She was the one who sparked all this support in, in Georgia, where she won her Congress seat and now she's moving into Congress. So we have at least one person who's going into a government who thinks that said government is being controlled by people who eat children uh, after molesting them on an international scale. That's horrifying. When did we stop believing in facts? When did we stop believing in logic? Of course, we saw a, a report earlier of um, a Republican senator. He went on TV. He claimed, you know, who is to say that the fraud doesn't exist? We don't have any proof of the fraud, but who's to say it doesn't exist? I mean, we don't have uh, proof of the moon landing, but we, we think that exists. And then it calls into question, what do you mean we don't have proof of the moon landing? 
if this is the substance that that elected officials want to bring to conversations, it's going to be increasingly difficult to find any common ground. And that isn't to say we don't have common ground. They're just going to delightfully ignore it in favor of galvanizing their bases, in favor of, of increasing the partisan divide to get more money out of their donations, to get a, a higher turnout for every election, to secure their power so they're going to stay there forever. And that's a problem. And it's going to continue to be a problem. And it's it's a horrifying prospect. But here we are. So when you see these news stories, don't just let them pass you by. You need to understand the importance of these things. And it's on both sides. If you see extremism on the left that, that causes undue grief to the right, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to, you know, go to someone's baby shower or rather, I'll take a real anecdote that I did see. We saw uh, on Twitter, it went somewhat viral. Someone had a Christmas tree topper with abortion uh, paraphernalia. It was the two tools that you use during an abortion. I understand that we want to celebrate being pro-choice. I understand that that some people feel very strongly about being pro-choice and pro-life for the record. And there's nothing wrong with having your own opinions. When it does become a problem, if you want to look at the right and you want to chastise them for pushing their beliefs onto others, and then you want to go around showing off your abortion tree topper, you know that's just going to create animosity. You know that's just going to create arguments. And of course, I'm sure that person didn't care. They wanted to do it anyways, just to create that sort of galvanized energy around that post so they could have at least fun interactions and go viral because that's fun and cool. But you don't think about the repercussions because if, if they want to paint people on the left as Christianity-hating, Christmas-hating, socially extreme and if the left wants to paint the right as gun loving, disrespectful to African Americans, bigoted to other races, let, how, about, how about on both sides we stop playing into those stereotypes? There's it does no good. It makes you feel better for about a half a second, or for as long as that post keeps getting likes. But the minute that you realize now the other person, the other side, looks at you like that is that is the the standard, then we have a problem because then we're never going to get anything done. So if you can't hold yourself at at least at least a little bit of grace when you interact with the other side, you're going we're going to have everlasting problems. It seems a bit extreme, but this is how people grow up in households that tell them what is right and wrong. And then they look outside and they see what their parents are telling them and they say, hey, mom must be right. That's where it comes from. That's the problem. So you need to carry yourself with at least a little bit of understanding, empathy and grace and to react to these stories with the appropriate reaction, not with eyes glazed over a little bit of sadness and then another sip of coffee. You need to take these things to heart to understand that these actions are fueled and they fuel other actions. And we need to all take action if we're going to get anywhere and we're going to stop these levels of extremity granted on both sides. I Don't, don't get me wrong. This is not a right specific or left specific, but we saw it during the riots earlier this year where looters took the advantage of a social situation just to loot. And that was honestly, it's more disrespectful to the movement to do things like that, to infiltrate just to create that level of havoc. But then we see it on the right when the National Guard gets caught in and they they put out poisonous gas that uh, you know meant to disperse uh, protesters, but they use it on people just holding signs, not looters or rioters. That's a problem. So don't let yourself be numbed to this. Don't let yourself fall victim to that media trap of just expecting these horrible things to happen. We can make the world a better place, but we're going to need to do it with a clear conscience, one that understands that these instances are not normal. They do not happen in other countries on scales like we see in the United States, 
And this sort of partisan divide is going to kill us all. It is going to destroy our country. And I will continue into this segment about partisanship because that's all it is next segment. Uh, and it will be the final segment. It's going to take up a good amount of time. And it is a big story. So we're going to talk about that in just a second. But you need to understand that it's on all of us. And, and we always talk about collective responsibility. You and I treating each other with respect makes a conversation go so much smoother. You can't just hold that to your echo chamber. It can't be, I talk really kindly to my echo chamber, and if they bring in a new idea, we'll talk about it and we'll discuss it over coffee. It can't just be your echo chamber. It has to be the other side as well. So no, that doesn't mean you have to compromise on your beliefs the instant you're challenged, but it does mean that you need to, you need to understand that, yes, people hold differing beliefs and exacerbating those problems is not going to make anything better. It's just going to make things worse. And then when you see news stories of people being stabbed over political beliefs, that is when you say enough is enough. That is when we draw the line as Americans because that isn't an acceptable standard. So going forward, at the very least, at the very least, at least hold on to that thought just when you interact with other people on the other side or or. When you read new articles that make you say, wow, that's horrible, don't just say it. Feel that. Truly understand what it means. Because as horrible as it can be, it's the only way we're going to get through this with any level of sanity. It's the only way we're going to come together as as a group. And when I mean a group, I mean all Americans. It's the only way we're going to get past these trials and tribulations. In our last story today, it's it's a huge one. And quite honestly, it's a historic moment for precedent and it's a historic moment for democracy. And it's a huge sigh of relief. We talked about it last week. But of course, the final story, the big story is Trump's lawsuit stemming from Texas to overturn four states general elections just to get rid of the votes for Biden. Of course, giving Trump the presidency, this lawsuit was effectively going to change the results of the election. And of course, stemmed from the Republicans who were unhappy with the loss, who felt it was fraudulent for many number of reasons that they couldn't prove. And it was huge. It ended up being a massive, massive multi-state lawsuit that quite honestly, hasn't been seen on a scale divided anyways ever before. It was 19 Republican attorneys general versus 22 Democratic ones. And my God, there was 126 House Republicans that moved to support the bill as well, even the Republican minority leader. So it was huge. There was so much weight on this lawsuit that it was incredible. It was brought forth by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. He's a longtime Trump supporter. He's been a long, long time Trump supporter, early supporter back in 2015, 2016, vocally at any rate. And and so, of course, this, of course, moved to have Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, and Wisconsin nullified and retroactively changed to the Republican victories. This has a number of implications. And we're going to start with the biggest one, of course. This election uh, change would have been the largest constitutional breach since the Alien and Sedition Acts, if you ask me, or the Patriot Act, either or. It was on the scale of one of the largest infiltrations of government past the Constitution into law. Had it been instructed, had the Supreme Court agreed with it, this would have been insane. And they didn't. And you know why it's crazy? Because you know the lawsuit is baseless when not only did the Republican majority Supreme Court disavow it, but they went zero and nine in favor of nullifying it. They went against this in not on a partisan level either. It wasn't because two or three Republican judges decided to sit it out or decided that it was unconstitutional. Every single one, including all three of Republican appointments that have happened under Trump's term, all three of him. It's incredible. 
all three of them have been, quite honestly, they have abandoned their master, and that is phenomenal to see. Because you want to look at Kavanaugh, he's broke with the Republicans a few times in lawsuits, and quite honestly, his record, while I think his past was a bit strange and his confirmation was horrible, he has been a decent judge so far, at least on the bipartisan looking at what he can approach with, with logic and a constitutional view. That's fine. Amy, we have not, she was untested. And this was her chance to prove to Republicans and more importantly, to right-wing extremists that she would stand by them. And she didn't. This was, quite honestly, a bit of an upset. I was expecting her to be the only one, her, perhaps Kavanaugh, perhaps another, to actually go through with this court case to at least try and push it through. But no, uh, it was shut down completely. And this is phenomenal because what does the precedent set? Sure, even going past the fact that it would have nullified the election, would have nullified 8 million, 7 million votes, which would have been horrible. What would this law, this court case actually show, this lawsuit actually show? Well, it stops one state from interfering in another state's elections. And that is the point of federalism. Anything that is not explicitly said to be given the permission of control by the government, executive, legislative, or judiciary, it falls upon the states. And those states have the right to run a number of things, including their elections. So if Texas was able to get this lawsuit through and nullify the four, even if there was rank fraud, even if the you know the state of Georgia decided it's actually not going to be a vote and the state legislature would just choose who the electoral votes go to, that would be well within their right. If that was voted on and that was agreed to, that would be well within the right. And you know who wouldn't be able to choose that? Texas. Texas would not be able to say, Georgia, you can't do that, or Pennsylvania, you can't do that, or California, you can't do that, because for that reason, because if Texas can infiltrate another state's elections just like that, if all it takes is one lawsuit because the the party in power feels that way, my God, the whole democratic system falls down. The whole federalist system absolutely is demolished by lawsuits like this. So the precedent set showing that even with Republicans in power in every single way, every facet, but the Congress, they still will not cross that line. And that is an excellent win for democracy, because as we've seen with every president, we get more and more executive orders. As we've seen with every president, we've seen small scale appointment uh, with no confirmation. We've seen the legislature uh, overstep their boundaries, making things that I'm not sure they should. Presidents using executive orders to get around legislature for power of the purse. It's it's a shame, but the whole system has been slowly, slowly disintegrating under the pressure of its own self. That said, at least the bare bones of democracy still stand because we at least get to see these small victories every so often. Of course, this is a huge victory in precedent and in actuality. I I call it small mostly in just because I'm kind of surprised they didn't. I'm surprised this held, at least held so steadfast. So, yes, of course, you should celebrate this. This this should be an absolute victory for every single American, not just Republicans, not just Democrats. And you want to say, oh, well, the Republicans lost because they didn't get Trump in office. But my God, the door this would have opened would have been insane. It would have been insane had the Republicans actually gone through with this lawsuit, had the Supreme Court agreed with it, had Trump stayed in office for another four years, not only would there be incredible unrest, but what happens when Republicans finally, assuming they do, either there's a civil war, which is quite likely, honestly, at that stage in the game, because you would essentially effectively uh, orchestrated a coup. But had that not happened, had Democrats ever regained power, they would have just changed the laws of every Democratic state, every you know half state and any state with a Democratic uh, legislature and government in place would have just awarded the Democratic nominee with the votes required. It would have just become what states are Democrat 
and it would become some sort of blue dynasty in the blue states and red dynasty in the red states. There would be no democracy. That would have been it. Quite honestly, that would have been the end of Republican tradition, Republicanism in the United States. That would be the end of federalism, the end of base democracy. So, yes, Republicans, you may feel like you lost just now, but you won and you won big. The American people won big. Uh, and we should cherish this moment. This is the highlight of the week. This victory will go down in legal precedent as the last ditch effort of a sad president to regain power. And quite honestly, all it did was affirm our democratic principles for hopefully another 100,000 years. It was a massive victory. And we should all, quite honestly, hold our tears back because congrats, your democratic institutions held fast. You want to talk about complaining all the time about what democracy can't do because, my God, it can't do a lot. The one thing it should be able to do, and it just demonstrated on an epic scale, it can hold itself together when it needs to. That is it. Then that's what I'm going to end on because it's a wonderful note and it's a, it's, it's a happy note for once. But we're holding ourselves together. Moving forward, of course, Joe Biden will be inaugurated within the month and a half. So congratulations to him. We're getting close, guys. We're, we're getting close to a new era. And quite honestly, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens next. Thank you for listening through to the end. We'd really appreciate it if you check us out at Aligning America on Instagram and Twitter. And if you really enjoyed it and want more content like this, be sure to head over to our Patreon to ensure we can keep putting out episodes, changing hearts and minds one podcast at a time. Thank you.